You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. And we're back. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I am excited to start this new year with um, many positive, optimistic thoughts. Uh, And I hope all of you are too. I hope all of you have made resolutions, including uh, listening to Green Mountain Medicine on a consistent basis. Um, But anyways, before I get carried away, uh, I'd like to just introduce our topic and the, the startup of our lineup for this year, and that is antibiotic stewardship. I'm joined today by Dr. Lindsay Smith, who is a uh, infectious disease doctor at the University of Vermont Medical Center. She's also the Antibiotic Stewardship Program Director and an assistant professor at the Lorna College of Medicine. A little bit about her, she conducted her training at the University of Chicago and has an ID fellowship from the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Her interests are antibiotic stewardship, um, for which she is very prominently known. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Let's jump on in into the interview. Okay. Um, I have a very serious question to ask you. Yes. And that is, um, what is your favorite bug? Excellent question. My favorite uh, is not a bacteria. It's a fungus. It's blastomycosis. Uh, okay. That is my favorite. It is a fungus that's out there in the world, usually in the soil. And uh, so I did my training in Chicago, and it's known as Chicago's disease because it was always predominantly found along the coast of um, Lake Michigan. And then when I moved here a couple of years ago, I was shocked to find out that Blasto was everywhere here in northern Vermont. And so it's one of my favorites because it uh, can cause so many different problems pretty much like skin lesions, lung lesions, and then every once in a while it can go to the brain. So That is fascinating. And it looks so beautiful under the microscope. <laughs> oh, I have to take a look at some point. I'm a little terrified knowing that it's so common in Vermont. Um, treatable. 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 Do you happen to have a least favorite bug? Um, yes. My least favorite is Enterococcus. It is so tricky to find out, figure out whether or not you really think it's causing a problem or it's not pathologic. And then if you think it is pathologic, there's just not very many drugs that kill it. Um, and so I find it frustrating when that's the culprit organism. Mm, I sympathize with that. Definitely something I've seen on the clinical floors. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that topic, um, our listeners know that you are quite involved with statewide antibiotic stewardship. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so my colleague, John Ahern, who's the infectious disease pharmacist here at UVM, and I have a contract through the health department to help six other hospitals develop their antimicrobial stewardship programs. And the goal of us working with them is so that those hospitals can meet the core elements of antimicrobial stewardship that's set out by the CDC. Um, And so it's making sure that those hospitals have a 
a program that has all the right people involved and that they're able to collect the antimicrobial usage data. So knowing like how much of each drug gets administered to each patient um, and then analyzing that data to find out what drugs are getting overused and why are they getting used and how are they getting used and making interventions to try and get the clinicians at those hospitals to prescribe drugs appropriately. Okay. What is your um, work in that shown you about inpatient care and say the types of mistakes doctors might make? Well, I wouldn't, first off, I wouldn't call them mistakes. Okay. I think um, stewardship sometimes gets a bad rap in that we're known as the antibiotic police and that's not really it at all. We are just trying to optimize patients' therapy to have the best patient outcomes that we can. And these sorts of interventions have shown that it can um, improve outcomes and, um, and so if you can improve outcomes then you're going to decrease readmissions and you're going to decrease side effects from drugs and decrease other adverse events like getting C. diff and all of that. Um, and so it's really trying to get clinicians to think really broadly about what impact their prescribing habits are going to have on both the individual patient level and on the society as a whole. Okay. So, um, with, you know, just because a patient comes in and they're super sick doesn't mean they need every single broad spectrum antibiotic under the sun. Really thinking about what's the cause of their infection, like syndrome based, and then what are the causative organisms that are most likely to cause that problem and just picking drugs that are targeting those organisms that you think are the most likely ones causing the problem. Okay. That sounds like a reasonable approach to it. Um, one thing that I've seen um, some physicians struggle with, especially during my internal medicine clerkship, mm -hmm. um, is that sometimes they reach this sort of crossroads where they're wondering, do I go about um, trying a more thorough diagnostic approach and ordering extra tests or starting spectrum antibiotics, or do I get an ID consult? Mm. And we wonder, do you have a rule of thumb or general criteria for our listeners for what warrants an ID consult? Excellent question. So I don't think there's any exact algorithm that should end up at call for an ID consult. Um, I think if you're thinking about it, call us. If you're struggling to make a diagnosis, call us. If you're ordering more and more antibiotics, call us. Um, and we're happy to see the patient and help sort through everything with you. There is some data to suggest that patients who have Staph aureus bacteremia benefit from an ID consult um, and they have better outcomes. So I would encourage anybody who is, whose patient has Staph aureus bacteremia to call us. Um, here at UBM, the kind of uh, way to get patients out of the hospital with IV antibiotics essentially requires an ID consult because we're the only ones who can write for IV antibiotics outside the hospital. I think the biggest thing is that we get called too late into the patient's care um, and then it's just, I mean we're totally happy to come see the patient but it's just that much more work to sort through the whole prolonged hospital stay, all the tests, all the trips to the OR. Um, and so if you're thinking about it, call us sooner rather than later. Okay. Great, great rules to remember. 
And just to kind of double back on that, when you mentioned staph aureus bacteremia, mm -hmm. was that specific to MSSA or MRSA or both? Both. Okay, great to know. Um, pivoting a little bit to outpatient care, we what do you think are some ways that providers can improve their prescribing techniques? So um, the whole realm of outpatient antimicrobial stewardship is still in development because nobody knows exactly how to tackle this large area um, because so many antibiotics are prescribed in the outpatient setting. I think the biggest thing to think about are the straightforward times when antibiotics are not indicated. So viral URI symptoms, not needed for antibiotics, and asymptomatic bacteria, no antibiotics are needed. And I think if clinicians focused on those two areas, the, the amount of pres unnecessary prescriptions would decrease tremendously. Um, I think the other thing that we're learning in the ID community and the whole medicine community entirely is that we're probably over-prescribing duration of therapy. And there's a lot of studies showing that shorter is just as good as longer. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think where you know people are hesitant to say, oh, you only need seven days of therapy because they've been prescribing two weeks of therapy their entire life for patients, um, you know, seven days is probably just as good. Um, and so I, the whole medicine uh, community is going to try and shrink the duration of therapy. Okay. Do you think sometimes um, prescribers over-prescribe out of fear about resistance? Or can you talk a little bit more about the resistance profiles in Vermont and what considerations doctors should be making? So I think we're really lucky to live in Vermont and have the resistance profile that we do because there's really not that much antibiotic resistance. Um, the gram negatives are not all that resistant and probably throughout the state, the rate of MRSA is only about 25%. Um, and so we have a lot of drugs at our disposal that still work. And I think the focus needs to be keeping it that way. So uh, in terms of clinicians out there, you know, being thoughtful in prescribing the narrowest spectrum agent that you can, trying to prescribe beta-lactams or penicillins when you can, mm -hmm. and not overdoing it on the duration. Is there anything that you are most worried about regarding resistance? Any trends, for example? Oh. Sure, I'm terrified about all of those horrible multi-drug resistant <laughs> organisms. <laughs> um, because they're all around us, they're just not here in Vermont yet, and it's only a matter of time. Um, you know, I'm worried about carbapenem resistant organisms, I'm worried about Canada auris, I'm worried about um, like multi-drug resistant gonorrhea, and we're not... Um, used to seeing such multi-drug resistant organisms and um, it's gonna be a shock to everybody when they do get here. Okay. So it hasn't arrived yet. So Not got yet. Little, got a little bit of time. Okay. Uh, some motivation to turn the tide, so to speak. Definitely. So moving on to a maybe a more um, broader focus on infectious disease. 
Um, you've trained or worked in rural and urban settings before, right? If you call Vermont or Burlington rural, then yes. Sure. Coming from the perspective of like... Compared uh, to downtown Chicago, yes. <laughs> right. Compared to California from where I'm from, absolutely. <laughs> um, so on that note, can you describe any differences that you've noticed between the microbial profiles in an urban versus rural setting? Um, that's a great question. Um, so uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be urban versus rural. Um, I, you know, there's pockets of places across the country that have more multi-drug resistant organisms than others. And there's definitely urban centers like Chicago and Detroit um, that have lots of multi-drug resistant organisms. But there's a large portions of the rural southeast that have multi-drug resistant mm. organisms. Um, and then there's um, places like Seattle and Portland in the northwest, which are big urban centers, and they have very little multi-drug resistant organisms. And so um, it really is a, a bigger geographical um, area that gets affected. Okay. So you wouldn't say that as Vermont becomes more urbanized, that they would be at particularly higher risk for something new? No, develop. not necessarily. Okay. It, it de uh, is all dependent upon the prescribing practices so, and what um, gets brought in. Because as people move more, the bacteria move with them. Mm -hmm. And the world is a much smaller place than it used to be. And so it's really easy to bring organisms from around the world. And once they're here, they're not going away. All right. Well, I guess that uh, definitely vindicates Costco <laughs> and other <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> other big things like that. Um, okay, moving on from the bugs to the drugs. Are there any interesting developments in the world of antibiotic pharmaceuticals? So, yes, and this is not necessarily my area of expertise. But there are several new drugs coming out, um, really trying to target multi-drug resistant gram negatives, a couple for gram positives. Because Vermont does not have the multi-drug resistant organism problem, I haven't been focusing on all the specifics of it. Um, but there are definitely new drugs coming out um, that are showing promise. Uh, unfortunately, the pharmaceutical company doesn't find drug development for antibiotics particularly profitable. So it's challenging to get the um, kind of innovation and the money behind developing new and novel mechanism, mechanisms of action um, and those sorts of drugs to get like fully developed and operationalized. Um, so. Um, the most recent new drugs are variations on kind of the same theme of, you know, beta-lactams plus novel beta-lactamase inhibitors or slight variations and new side chains on a beta-lactam with an old beta-lactamase inhibitor. So, or modifications of tetracyclines. So it would be awesome if we could get really novel mechanisms of action to help target some of these multi-drug resistant organisms. Yeah, I agree. That definitely sounds like a limitation mm -hmm. um, in the field of antibiotic stewardship. 
But I guess that poses a new question, which would be um, while we wait for pharmaceutical innovation, um, how can we champion antibiotic stewardship and educate clinicians even outside of UVM Medical Center? So the best thing to do is only prescribe antibiotics when they're absolutely necessary. And I fully acknowledge that sometimes it's hard to make that decision. It's hard to determine if your patient has a viral or bacterial pneumonia. Um, and when uh, you decide that your patient does need antibiotics, you need to take into consideration you know, using the most narrow spectrum agent, the shortest duration possible, um, and encouraging your patient to take the, the antibiotics as prescribed. So no, no giving Zosin to everybody. No, that's one of my biggest things that upsets me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we're trying to do something new, too, in the end of our podcast, and that is to really um, connect our listeners to additional resources that mm -hmm. our experts have found helpful. Um, can you think of one or two resources you think clinicians might find helpful for an ID reference, particularly our more rural listeners with less yeah. resources? Um, well, I think first in terms of antimicrobial stewardship, one of your best resources is your hospital's antibiogram. Knowing what your resistance profile looks like in your hospital to help you guide um, your empiric therapy is a great place to start. Um, in terms of more general things, um, my go-to places uh, for assistance are the IDSA guidelines. Um, they have lots of great articles about um, all sorts of different bacterial topics, fungal topics, viral topics, um, and the most recent one to come out uh, just a couple of months ago was the new Community Acquired Pneumonia Guideline. I read about that. So updated from 10 years ago, they really make some great points um, for both inpatient and outpatient therapy. And you can tell that the authors had a focus of stewardship in mind, um, which was really great to read. So. Okay. So there's a couple of great resources out there for our listeners. That, I think, wraps up all the questions I have. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Smith. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Definitely. Looking forward to working with you soon. Um, for the rest of our listeners out there, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the second portion of our podcast where Dylan will be conducting a thorough review of One Health. Uh, more on that to come. Hey everyone, it's Dylan coming to you from uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. I'm on a uh, away rotation and it's starting to snow here. Uh, and although I know we've had it a little bit easier than you folks in Vermont. Uh, I want to say thanks to Matt for that uh, wonderful introduction and a big thank you to Dr. Smith for being our guest on this episode. I listened to your guys' conversation and I think there's a lot of really uh, impor important, useful uh, you know, facts to, to take out of that um, that's going to help uh, everyone be a little more mindful of how they uh, prescribe antibiotics and how we can uh, make the best use of the antibiotic resources that we, uh, we have currently without getting too deep into resistance. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about today uh, was actually something mentioned to us by Dr. Smith uh, that is a CDC uh, initiative called One Health. 
Uh, and what One Health is, it's really kind of a philosophy uh, that the health of humans, uh, and particularly as it pertains to infectious disease, is very closely related to the health of the animals that we live near and really the environment that we live in. Uh, you know, the idea that um, there's a relatedness between human health and animal health actually originated with some of the founding fathers of modern medicine, including doctors Virchow and Osler in the 19th century. And while we kind of knew about this uh, through the 20th century, uh, the idea of One Health started gaining some real traction in 2004 um, during uh, where a meeting was convened uh, for the establishment of 12 Manhattan Principles um, that were set to identify the relatedness, uh, different tenets of the relatedness of human health and animal health and set out ways to protect uh, the health of, of both humans and animals. And the CDC actually took this a step further in 2009 and opened a One Health office um, that is really serves as a resource to promote this philosophy and help um, both initiatives at the domestic level and the global level um, to address concerns uh, of related to um, how the health of animals can affect the health of humans and vice versa. One really neat thing about this initiative is that it's very multidisciplinary, um, focusing on a collaboration between physicians, veterinarians, ecologists, policymakers, lab researchers, um, you know, global health, or, or excuse me, um, health ministries and environmental protection agencies. And again, this is uh, both looking at the United States and at, uh, at countries around the world. Um, one thing I think it's important to recognize is, uh, and that actually might be something that uh, Vermonters can relate to, is uh, the that a lot of people around the world do live in pretty close quarters with um, with different types of animals. Um, you know, I think in Vermont, with uh, you know our large uh, rural population, you know, people become accustomed to living with you know cows and, and chickens and, and other livestock. Um, and that there really is a, uh, that the health of those animals, uh, can have a direct impact on your own health. And that's, um, something that's a very real reality. It's a very true reality for, for populations all over the world, both in developed and developing countries. And so what are some of the diseases that I'm talking about? Well, uh, in fact, the one thing that I learned is that when we think about infectious disease especially, uh, six in ten infectious diseases uh, are spread to humans from animals. And they can cause, or they, they have been seen to cause up to two and a half billion cases of disease and up to 2.7 million deaths worldwide in a year. Some of the major players uh, are things like salmonella, rabies, Q fever caused by coxiella, West Nile virus, uh, and then one uh, real-world scenario that was illustrated to me in my research on this topic was uh, if we all think about kind of over the last year the E. coli um, outbreak that occurred in uh, romaine lettuce, and you know there was 
the uh, kind of the shortage in all the grocery stores of of being able to get romaine lettuce, and people weren't really sure. Well, is it safe? Is it not? Uh, and this all really ties back to um, a one health issue, uh, in so much as you know the E. coli. Well, where did it come from? It came from um, cows that were uh, you know living uh, and breeding on the same farm. Uh, often their manure was used in adjacent fields and these, these cows could be carriers of virulent E. coli strains. And, you know, without the right kind of contamin- or contamination prevention policies, this is what leads to the, this kind of thing where we can't get our romaine lettuce anymore or we're going to uh, be in for trouble. So I think this is just a really good example that has touched a lot of us um, in in recent uh memory of uh, how One Health does actually affect all of us, not just those of us who live uh, in close proximity with animals. One other thing just to mention is that, you know, these issues have become more and more prominent uh, with the uh, increased, uh, you know, travel between different parts of the world. Um, And we've seen that with really infectious diseases all over, but the same holds true for zoonotic diseases. Um, also, as our our own human population grows and we continue to, uh, you know, develop more land and build out more neighborhoods, uh, I feel like we're all uh, coming into closer and closer contact with wild animals that live in the the natural areas around us. And you know, I know I've seen deer, you know, running around Burlington uh, that maybe didn't used to come out, but as we've built out more, I mean, they have less fewer and fewer places to go. So. This is just a, a micro example of, of how the uh, how animals and humans are, are becoming in closer closer contact. So uh, one health with its multidisciplinary approach um, really does tackle things issues at um, both the um, at the United States level and at the global level. Um, first, kind of focusing on the United States, one of its biggest um, accomplishments was uh, convening a meeting in December of 2017 that focused on zoonotic disease prioritization. And this brought together, you know, players from all the major, uh, you know, different fields of medicine, thinking about medical doctors, human medical doctors and veterinarians, um, you know, different factions of the CDC and other parts of uh, U.S. government to uh, really take a look at the, the profile of of different zoonotic diseases in our country and kind of make a list of which ones are the most important. So actually, I have the list here. There were, there were eight things that were deemed uh, top priority in this meeting, and that included um, zoonotic influenza, so that's things like avian flu or swine flu, salmonella, West Nile, the plague, um, different coronaviruses like MERS, rabies, brucellosis, and Lyme disease. And Lyme disease is something that um, you know we're pretty familiar with here in Vermont, but uh, just it's interesting to see that that's actually you know a national priority. Um, other things that happen in the U.S. that's led by One Health, um, they actually have a lot of um, educational programs, both for uh, I guess for example. 
educating youth in agricultural education about the spread of zoonotic disease. So as our future generations of, of farmers and livestock breeders, um, you know, come into their own, they really do have to know about the diseases that they're um, their animals can harbor and spread and how to keep them the, the most healthy. Um, there's also a zoonosis education coalition to educate um, pet store owners and pet owners um, about the different diseases that, that pets can, can harbor and spread to humans. Like a big one thinking is uh, salmonella and uh, for all of you who have pet turtles, um, recognizing that uh, that risk and, and how to keep yourself and your, your pets safe. And um, there was also a, a story, it was from a couple of years ago, um, about a population of sea otters in Monterey Bay, California, uh, that was mysteriously dying. And it was really um, a investigation conducted by One Health to figure out that uh, there had been uh, a development of some harmful algae blooms in a local lake that had been spreading uh, or been draining off into the ocean that and those, that was making um, these sea otters sick. So uh, that's just the kind of thing that, um, you know, One Health is really here to kind of uh, work with, you know, our physicians and our veterinarians and our e ecological researchers to get answers to some of these mysteries. Uh, and this really... Um, has expanded worldwide as well. One thing that One Health offers is a, a framework for setting up one of these disease prioritization workshops in different countries. So just like I mentioned the different diseases that are most prominent in the United States, uh, you know, that's going to be different for um, other countries. And this is the kind of information that the, the ministries of health of these countries can use to um, you know, better protect their people. And so One Health has, has kind of built a, a standard model of, you know, who should be, um, you know, brought to these meetings, what kind of um, research should be looked at, and what are some of the most productive ways to um, identify steps that can be taken to protect, uh, you know, the people of, the people and the animals uh in you know a specific country at a specific time, um, some of the examples of initiatives that have been un undertaken in different countries have um, included workshops in China that have helped uh, decrease the uh, rate of canine rabies. Uh, there was a lead contamination in Nigeria that was first noticed um, with a decline in a duck population, uh, and of course. When the, first the ducks are dying, no one really bad in an eye, unfortunately. But once once children started getting sick, um, it was really kind of a one health coordinated effort to identify um, the the source of the lead contamination and to recognize that uh, the fact that the ducks had been dying off was a sign that we or that something needed to be done. Uh, and then one other cool thing I learned about was. Um, a initiative to use crowdsourcing in Thailand using an app called the Farmer app that uh, would allow farmers or people owning livestock to uh, make direct reports of different illnesses that their 
livestock or animals may be developing and how we, uh, this helping the government collect information so that uh, it can better be prepared to address this. So all in all, uh, I think the CDC One Health really did uh, does illustrate that, especially when we think about infectious diseases, um, there is such a relatedness between the health of our animals and the health of us. And we really do need to think about uh, working with all the uh, you know different professions and and um, sources of expertise that can help us keep um, <clears throat> uh, keep all of us as healthy as possible. And, and this you know is going to be related to antibiotic resistance um, and also uh, thinking about our uh, preparedness for uh, flu pandemics. Um, so if you're if you're interested in more information. Um, on the CDC One Health website, there are actually um, there is a resource for uh, CME that involves uh, one-hour monthly webinars called the Zoonosis and One Health Updates, or ZOHU, um, where you can get updates on different uh, zoonotic topics, and then they also do have a Twitter account. Uh, at CDC underscore N-C-E-Z-I-D. And they have a lot of great information uh, if you're interested in learning some more. I know I learned a lot just by uh, exploring the resources they have on their website. And with that, this has been the sixth episode of Green Mountain Medicine. Uh, again, thanks to Matt and Dr. Smith for their discussion on antibiotic stewardship uh, for all of us practicing in Vermont. I'm Dylan again and hope to see you at the next episode. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai. And I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.